everybody, and welcome to our second episode of um, Watch Party Gaming, a uh, Good Omens episode, season one, Yay. episode two. <laughs> so I managed to get that all out without stumbling Woo! too much. <laughs> I am your host, uh, your increasingly in over her head host, Siobhan. Um, <laughs> You're doing fine. You're doing fine. And introducing everybody on the panel, starting with Greg. Hello, dear. And Axel. Hello. Say hello, David. Presenting Spock 2. <laughs> Spock season 2? <laughs> no, it's a really deep cut from uh, the animated series. Oh, wow. And welcome back after far too long away, Saima. Yay! Go, go, Gamonites! I'm workshopping that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's great to be back. I missed you all so much. We missed you too. But so fun listening to you. Like with every, all the episodes that were coming out. It's been so much fun. So yeah, really happy. To it's be so here. good to have you yes. back. We're happy to have you here. So let's dive right into episode two. We start with an aerial shot of London that focuses in on two of the archangels heading into Aziraphale's bookshop. And there's this absolutely wonderful scene where the angels are trying to pretend to be human. I must speak to you in private, for I am buying pornography. 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 <laughs> so embarrassing. We, we humans are so embarrassed by this, so we're going to say it out loud and where everyone can hear. Repeatedly. That's not suspicious at all. Uh, my favorite part is the book that Michael picks up. If you pause and look at the title, just as he drops it and says that humans are really basic and and uh, I can't even remember what simple. he says, but it's and so he's simple. Yeah, this is that big, fat, thick book that's about four inches thick, and it's all about the household. Yeah. <laughs> these these simple humans have written this uh, four inch thick book about something as simple as a household. <laughs> Gabriel is the worst boss. He's just cringe. Like I was, I could see former bosses that I'd had <laughs> in in them. <laughs> like literally, just oh, like skin crawls that you have to work with this person, and they're in a position of you know authority um, and taking credit for. You know, subordinates that come up with witty one-liners. I'm going to use that. It's mine now. <laughs> you can never say that. <laughs> <laughs> so is it more Michael Scott or David Brent? Both. Yeah. <laughs> can I just say that Michael Sheen is the absolute master of the micro-expressions? The entire time that mm -hmm. Gabriel is talking, Aziraphale's face is like... This is going so badly, but he can't actually say anything. He can't correct his boss. Yeah, it's <laughs> he telling can't a whole story. That this is not the worst thing he's ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> <laughs> he just has to nod and smile and go along with it. And the humans in the bookstore. Those nods and <laughs> smiles. They're. I mean, his face is so active. It's great. Yeah, and you get to see all the uh, the humans in the background, just kind of looking over what is this disaster i am witnessing <laughs> now now something that uh that we we north americans may not get is the line about something smells evil oh that'll be the jeffrey archer books i had to look him up yeah i did too <laughs> so yeah jeffrey archer um is a terrible human being um he was a tory uh an mp who if i remember rightly got 
Didn't he, did he get sued into oblivion for something? Well, I, I think he sued somebody for libel around? and won, and then it turns out that he yeah. perjured himself in that libel trial and went to jail. That was it. Yes, Sounds about right for a Tory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he wrote a he, he wrote a series of novels about how great it is to be uh, a capitalist Tory and how wonderful everything is. You know, like fiction things that very eighties and awful. Yeah, the sun yes. loved him. So the smell is awful is entirely appropriate. <laughs> the smell. The- Something smells evil. Smell of evil. I will say they accept this that explanation very straightforward. Well, they don't actually know anything. Like it's that I. It's that sense of, you know, the CEO just pops in to your job, and pretends like they know what they're doing, but actually they've no idea. They're just there to mess with you, cause some chaos, and then probably puff away in the background. Like, do they actually walk back out of the shop? I think so. All of the angels are like that, though. Like, it's like, you know, this is the great plan. And no matter what anybody does, the great plan is going to be the great plan. And so we can just accept everything for how it is because we're the best and it's going to happen the way it's supposed to happen. So, I mean, that's the way God made them, right? That kind of follows into the the theology. There's a theology that angels have one moment of free will, which is when they get to decide whether to stay with God or go down and become devils. Um and having had that moment of free will, everything else is programmatic. Um, so, you know, having decided that they're on, you know, on the winning side, why would they have any doubts about anything ever? Everything's preordained. Yeah, yeah exactly. And they're going to win because they're on God's side. You know, he's God. So one of the things about this scene, um, you get to know um, Sandal- Sandalfun a little better. Mm-hmm. Sandalfun. Yeah. The terrible name. Um, <laughs> he was and, there at Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh yeah, you he were the guy at Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, biting <laughs> and turning people to salt. salt. <laughs> and you and you kind of he, so he's almost like Gabriel's mm. thug. Yeah, like you see the scene where the two of them are in the back room in the office with Azurafil, and they spread out so that Azurafil mm. is between them. So. He, he can't see both of them at the same time. He has to keep turning around yeah. to talk to them. And it, they refer to Sodom and Gomorrah like this terrible act of violence that Sandalfon was involved in. They take up an inherently threatening position mm-hmm. around Michael so that he is, he's always got his vulnerable back to somebody. Right. And it just it's kind of a, a really interesting visual way of laying down the relationship between Azuraville and the his bullies. co-workers. Mm-hmm. He is obviously very nervous. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They're very very they're... officious bullies, but still bullies nonetheless. Sandalfon stands between Azuraville and the door. It's like, yeah, yeah you're, you're going to have to go through me. Yeah. And he's he's def- yeah, I was going to say, he, he, he's built like muscle as well. And just the what Axel was saying about, so he, so he they were there at Sodom and Gomorrah. But I was just thinking about the actual biblical and it's also in the Quran as well that that's the angel that came that the people were wanting to attack or molest so it was almost like he came to cause like maybe everything was fine and then he showed up and actually caused the violence that led to the salting I thought that was quite interesting as well I mean that would fit shows up throws his weights around pisses people off they get pissed off and of course the story that we read is the one that's written from the side of the angels right it's going to make them sound good right um I mean, are angels really God's cops? Mm. Could be. 
In which case, A A A B. But you know, I mean, it reflects kind of like we see it on both sides, right? Like both heaven and hell are terrible. Mm-hmm. True. You know, and, and both of them see Earth and the people on it as pawns. You know, this is a battlefield. We we aren't important. Right. Right. Like we are the prize that they get to capture at the end of the battle. And it's certainly a theme that I'm starting to see develop is that the angels and demons really aren't that different from one another. And, and uh, Crawley and uh, Aziraphale are really just the only ones who realize that and embrace it at this point. Yeah, because they've spent so much time on Earth, they have a very different experience of the world, right? They've been in the trenches versus everybody else. They're, you know, they stay at home on the base and they come down to visit occasionally. So and they drink the Kool-Aid in their, in their house. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because why wouldn't you? I mean, just again, think about it as, yeah, think about, I mean, that you could, analogy for cops, analogy for people, like, you know, um, people from privileged countries and their exposure to unprivileged countries, right? Mm. Like, if you're an aid worker that just visits and doesn't engage with the culture, then you get to be patronizing and colonialist, right? As opposed to where if you live in it and embrace the culture and engage with it, then your experience is very, very different. And that's probably something that Simon could say more about than me. Well, we kind of see it from different approaches. No, I maybe. think you captured it perfectly. Um, and I actually oh, was you. really blown away by um, what you said with the last episode, which is that the angels and the demons, they are the same, right? Fallen, not fallen. Actually, they're all bullies and they're all just wanting to win. Yep. And I never really th- saw the fact that they don't actually care about humanity. We're just kind of collateral damage. I don't even see it as that they're trying to win us. Mm-hmm. They're just try- they just want to have their war. That's what they've been waiting for, right? Yeah. The, the break mm-hmm. happened and yeah. it's like, right, you know, we're better than you. Both sides think that. Both sides think they're going to win. And they're just waiting to have this big battle, which is what this whole show is about. And that really, it gave it a completely different perspective, which is almost like the angels and the demons slightly rebelling against god because god created humanity because she wanted to and apparently she loves us um but the angels and the demons are just still pissed off about that and they don't care about us they just want to have their fight they just want to show god look we won you know we're the best and so they really don't care about us at all so yeah mm-hmm. I, it's perfect analogy with the yeah. aid workers thank you axel like i said family <laughs> therapy yep would have solved a lot of problems so next we flip over to Crowley's apartment and um, Hell takes over his electronics again and starts talking to him through breakfast television. Pam and Sam and <laughs> just, the Am. Just love the uh, the British television, like zoom in on the face as they're talking and it just frames exactly how those shows are Yeah, that's are totally filmed. breakfast TV. <laughs> it's full of demons. <laughs> yeah. I'll buy that. That's pretty I'm universal. Get up at five o'clock in the morning to go to work. Yep. So this is the first time we see Crowley's apartment, and I just want to um, compare it to the bookstore, and then compare them both to Heaven and Hell because the color scheme is similar, but everything else is very, very different. You look at Crowley's apartment, and it's it's dark, but it's got these big high ceilings. It's got these big wide open rooms. There's plants in it. It's very empty. And what looks to be an original sketch of the Mona Lisa. Stone. It's very stone. It's, it's like a, a cave almost. Mm-hmm. But it's quiet. You get, you get space and you get solitude. 
And then if you look at Aziraphale's bookstore, it's it's the same light colors, lots of beiges, lots of lots of white, lots of brown but, and cream colors, but it's packed full of stuff. Like it's very crowded. There's tons of things in there. He's he's a book collector. He's got you know, little statues and, and, tchotchkes and, and tchotchkes all over his shop. And then you compare that to heaven, which is just this big blank open space. Mm. They've created their own spaces on earth that are, except in the most superficial ways, completely the opposite of where they come from. Which again, speaks <laughs> to them engaging with the world that they're in, right? And stepping away from where they're from. And not relating to their, and not liking, you know, their families. Yeah. And I thought this was a really kind of the maybe the first, maybe not, but the, the really spoken um, comment about Crowley having heard somewhere that speaking to your plants was a thing, and so they decided to try it, <laughs> and then we get one of the most terrifying sequences oh, yeah. in the in the show. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to hurt yeah, you a lot more and, than it'll you know, hurt even me. Even when I rewatched it, it was still really terrifying. It's, and it was, it was this reminder, right? We're one and a half episodes in. Don't forget, this is a demon, you know? And this is yeah, a reminder right. of... I, I think that was yeah. really important. Because, yeah, you know, I mean, you got it was being played by David Tennant. So that's inherently, like, lovable, you know? Um, and he's funny and does fun things. So there's all sorts of signals of, yeah, not terrifying. So you need those moments to go, oh, yeah, he is, in fact, a monster. And then you hear him um, shredding the plant in the background as the other plants mm -hmm. are quivering. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With yeah. the garbage disposal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, if Quaking you, if in you their have roots, the so subtitles on, yeah. it's garbage disposal. So that, so that scene actually happens a little bit later. And I do want to come back to it because I have some stuff. That I want to say about it. <laughs> yes. But um, for now, we have the little scene where the demons threaten Crowley. Right. Oh, I don't want to miss the end of that scene because the line that Crowley says when, when it comes out of that scene, when he's sitting in his chair <laughs> of, I didn't mean yes. to fall. I was just hanging out with the wrong oh, we'll, people. We'll get there. We'll get there. But now yes, we, we have... Yes, we need one of the four horsemen the first time. Probably the first horsemen to come into being. can't have war without war we get war <laughs> and she is wonderful um i'm just looking up her name here marielle enos enos i've no idea if i'm pronouncing that correctly but she is so striking enos. she's texan oh really it'd be enos Born you know i just realized that god kind of sort of repeats that line mm -hmm. when she's introducing you can't have war. a war without her <laughs> you can't have the in fact you can't have it without her <laughs> and actually uh looking up on uh, on x-ray she is married to alan ruck of ferris bueller's day off and succession another show i haven't seen you know who she reminded me of oh um jonathan ross's wife who's friends with neil gaiman is... no nobody knows that reference Maybe. okay yeah Skip that. No. <laughs> no, that's the first thing I thought of because I've seen pictures of them together. And it's like, oh, it, and I've forgotten her name, but she did the screenplay for Stardust. Okay, okay, nice. But she's Texan and Mormon, and uh, she went to BYU. Uh, Dad met her French mother on a mission, and uh, is married to Alan Ruck, Cameron from uh, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Trivia. So she gets in the mail. 
Aziraphale's old sword. It's not flaming yet, not yet. but Give it time. Uh, <laughs> we're just getting started. <laughs> well, for, well, first she's got to blow up the peace accords. Yeah. So literally. Yeah. Well, I found it interesting that the the delivery man, who's supposedly this mortal being, has like zero fear of walking into this situation where everybody has guns drawn at each other. Hey man, mm-hmm. he's got a job to do. <laughs> well, if he's like worked for UPS in Texas, you know. That's true. So then we do the the, um, the title scene again. I actually watched it through this time a couple of times to see if I could find all the four horsemen, <laughs> and they're in there. Everybody's in there. Mm-hmm. Next scene after the uh, after the credits is where we meet Agnes Nutter. Three hundred and sixty yes. years ago, she is. What a great! Character. Isn't she though? Burned at the stake <laughs> for being a witch. <laughs> Last true witch of England. Now, according to X-Ray, the woman who played her, Josie Lawrence, uh, actually did the the voice of Agnes Nutter Mm. in the BBC radio adaptation. Oh, cool. So something else. I um, watched this scene like a dozen times before I realized that the actor who plays Thou Shalt Thou shalt not commit adultery pulsifier. Second time through. Is the same actor who plays his descendant. Second time through. And it's Mm -hmm. it's like, because their demeanor is so different. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so different. And that's Jack Whitehall, who's a stand-up comic. He's hiding behind confidence for a change. British stand-up comic. It's it's really funny. And facial hair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And facial hair, yeah. I was just going to ask how we felt about that silly trope being used in this situation. But I think that character is just so out there ridiculous yeah. that it probably I works. I do want to point out that uh, in the, the witch hunting period in the UK, um, very few witches were burnt. Um, burning only happened to witches who were also convicted of a crime for which burning was the punishment, like uh, treason or murder. Um, being a witch was punished by hanging. Um, Whereas in Germany, burning was a lot more common for witches. And also witch hunting was vastly more common. Like there were 500 witches executed in the UK for witchcraft over, or sorry, in England. Some more in Scotland, but not very many there either. In Germany, in one town, in one witch hunt of six years, they burnt a thousand. Holy shit. Yeah. Like, and, and yeah, witch witch hunting was much more of, um, like it happened a lot more in the holy roman empire um probably because you had the whole um 30 years war which was about catholics versus protestants things were a lot more intense there so where does ducking come from that i think predate like that's that's older and that's a test that's not that's not a punishment Yes, yes. Yeah. But the, the important difference is, is that if you die from drowning because you're not a witch, then you mm. can be buried, you know, you'll get a proper Christian burial and your soul will go to heaven and everything will be great oh, overall, great. right? Which, yeah. well, everything's see, well, the thing is, though, like, again, if people <laughs> actually believe in Christianity, right, then death isn't a big deal, really, because everything... Because our time until death is just a tiny fraction of eternity and is when all the crappy stuff happens to good people and good things happen to bad people. So after you die, if you're good, you're going to spend eternity in heaven, which is way better than life. 
And if you are evil and wrong, then you're going to go to hell and suffer, which means you don't get to experience any more good stuff. So either way, being dead is better than being alive. Yeah, but this is where religion messes with you because it makes you believe that you're definitely going to go to hell oh. because you can't possibly be a good person. So, Well, under Christianity, all you have to do is to say, I'm sorry, God, I didn't mean it. Or I did mean it then, but I realized that it was, I was bad. <laughs> I was bad and wrong. Please and of course, me. tithe 10%. Even that, yeah. you don't need to do anything up until the point of apologizing, right? You can be as bad, terrible right. as you want. Then you apologize and, you know, you're good. I mean, you know, you may need to pay penance to the Catholic Church, you know, like all of your possessions and your lands go to them if you're rich. Um, but, you know, the important thing is you apologize wholeheartedly. You have to mean it. Yeah. So the other thing I really loved about the Agnes Nutter scene was how well it illustrated how stupid the tests of a witch were during mm -hmm. the witch trials of, oh, you're doing something that's new and progressive. So that absolutely must mean that you're completely a witch. <laughs> you're jogging. And you're a witch. <laughs> so you're, you're jogging for health and, and you're, you're curing these diseases that couldn't possibly be cured. So... A witch. The whole thing I got out of that is that if you think there's a chance you might be burned as a witch, do not look, neglect leg day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eighty pounds of <laughs> shot and shrapnel in her in her. Skin. Yeah, that's uh, that was effective. But at least her arthritis was cured from the acupuncture. Yes, yeah. <laughs> love that line. Well, that allowed her to to just saunter up there with all of the. All of the bomb and under her dress. Her whole attitude was fantastic. I remember when I when I read the book, I just thought that's brilliant. Uh, like, well, you're late. Yeah, Come on, hurry up. Ten minutes ago, you're tardy. <laughs> <laughs> I got things to do. <laughs> I guess, you know, if you have got uh, an absolutely solid knowledge of what's going to happen, it's going to create a very, you know, you've got equanimity. You're not going to be upset about mm -hmm. things, really, because you know there is no there's there's no choice. There's no option. But it's also the commitment you know? to the greater good. Right. Like she knows mm -hmm. that you know her oh, ancestors, yeah. you know, will hopefully save everything. Her, yeah, her sorry, descendants. descendants will save yeah. the world. So she just want to she wants to get on with it. So yes. She's really annoyed. You're late. <laughs> I've lost yeah. ten minutes here. Let's get on with yeah. saving the world. <laughs> So after the scene with Agnes Nutter, we are introduced to another major character, Anathema Device. Which is which a is great name. Definitely yes. a Terry Pratchett name. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a whole thing in this scene where, you know, they're going through the prophecies and one of them specifically mentions her by name and says, you will be there. And the thing that struck me about that is you have this girl who for her entire life her future is predestined. She, her entire family for generations has been working towards getting her specifically to this point in time. And it feels very much a parallel to um, Adam's story where he was born to be the Antichrist and she was born to fight the apocalypse. Right. Mm -hmm. Nobody has any choice in the matter. This has all just been handed to you. This is, this is your job. And an early investor in Apple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a nice touch. Or a gra her grandma, it was, yeah. anyway. Right. <laughs> the family fortune. It, it, it really shows in her attitude towards everything that she does that it's just almost completely blasé, like, oh, I have to get up and, and do this thing because I'm being told that I have to, but I really don't want to be here. Well, she did grow up in Malibu. I so. love the how 
Agnes's family over the centuries kind of ended up Spanish and then in America and then coming back to England. I love that kind of cycle. Mm-hmm. They, didn't, they didn't just keep it English, you know, <laughs> or, or say it was English yeah, American making, because making... they'd gone over. They've, they've actually kind of yeah. gone round. It's very global. I appreciated that. Yeah. So after meeting Anathema, then we meet Newton Pulsifier, <laughs> the great, 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 many <laughs> grandsons of thou shalt not commit adultery Pulsifier, which is a hell of a mouthful, but not unusual <laughs> for, for names. A, li- a little on the nose there. Using, right. you know, the correct name. Not shortening it. That's the, that's that. That was his full name as he was telling the villagers. My name is not adultery. My name is. That was his name. <laughs> yes. Big difference. Yeah, yeah. Very big difference. If you've if you've ever looked up Puritan names, they are amazing. <laughs> There's just so many that are that that was would not have been unusual. I think that's also a reference to one of the um, earliest printed copies of the Bible that had a misprint in it. Because the misprint, if I remember rightly, was that it said, Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> and that got like a it was in distribution, so then it got called. Well, that explains everything. <laughs> the, the importance of editors. The, 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 hang on a second. The Satan, <laughs> the Satan Bible. Um, let me see if I can find a reference that. that just hmm. So one of the things I love about how when you're first introduced to Newton, um, the camera does this thing where it flies up to the window and then it hits yes. the glass. Yes, bounces off the glass. <laughs> I noticed that, yes. Which, which kind of shows his Newton relationship. Is so to... bad with electronics. Yep. His relationship <laughs> to technology is, to uh, yeah. The this is something drone. I wondered, what do you all think? Is there a connection between the fact that... Um, he can't do technology, but the demons seem to thrive. So they're coming through on the television and the radio and all of that. Is he kind of, is that why that's his superpower? Because uh-huh. he can repel the, I mean, obviously that's, that's what he does at the end. But I thought that I, as I was watching this episode, I was just thinking, oh, the television and the demons coming through. And actually he's the complete opposite. And he just breaks everything. That's an interesting theory. I hadn't thought of that. That's I what I thought. But now cursed. I'm thinking, ah, actually, this is his superpower. He has to be there at the end with anathema. So I just want to, to, yeah. to, to jump back. It's the Wicked Bible that was published in 1631 as a reprint of the King James Bible. Um, in addition to thou shalt commit adultery, it also has an error in Deuteronomy. Um, where the word greatness appears as great ass, leading to the sentence, Behold, the Lord our God hath showed us his glory and his great ass. <laughs> oh my God. This was deliberate. This has to be deliberate. Come on. Oh, that's... No, I, 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 so I really wouldn't be... This sounds like the kind of thing that can sneak through... Um, you know, it's a very big book. You know, the <laughs> 1600s. Typesetters yeah. are I mean, bored. Right. Yeah, we could have passed the typesetter. I mean, maybe it was that. intentional. I'm not saying it wasn't, but you know, uh, it was or it wasn't. But anyway, uh, it's great. How have I not heard about this before? <laughs> That's awesome. There's no way that end just slipped out. The majority out, of it? the Wicked Bible's copies were immediately cancelled and destroyed, and the number of extant copies remaining today. 
um, is high, is relatively low. There is a copy in the New York Public Library, um, another awesome. in the Dunham Bible Museum in oh. Houston, Texas. The British Library had a copy on display, Ooh. opened to the misprinted commandment in a free exhibition until September 2009. Um, <laughs> there are a total of 15 known, and then I think they put, they, they open a new exhibit. I mean, you know, you can't, have, they've got a lot of books, but so there are 15 known copies, seven in Britain, seven in North America and one in New Zealand. Wow. And, and we know <laughs> that Obviously Zerifel yes. has one in his book. Oh, of course, sure. yeah. yeah. He's got every book but one. Actually, I would have thought that would be one books. that um, <clears throat> Crowley would have. So in the book, Aziraphale actually has oh, does a he? Okay. of misprinted yep. Bibles. Yes, there's one called <laughs> Bugger All This Bible because uh, <laughs> the typesetting said, Bugger All This, I'm off to the bus. <laughs> I am sick to death of typesetting. Uh, as a former typesetter, that, that, that sounds like a typesetter. Okay, so my headcanon is basically Crowley did it. Just two mistakes in, you know, all those words. Very yeah, subtle. Yeah. Very, you know, it could be a mistake. Yep. It sounds very Crowley. Yeah. And yes. in terms... Agreed. And so there may have caused some people to say, well, this is legit and committed sins. And it could also have destroyed confidence in the Bible as an accurate translation that led more people to ignore it and more people into sin. And so complicated chains of, of, of sinning, which is yeah. very Crowley. Oh, thank you for that, Axel. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that works for me. So we, we spend some time with Newt. Um, his mother is very supportive. He's, he's obviously having trouble getting um, and keeping a job in the era of everything is done on computers. But his mother is like, no, you'll get it. You'll get it. It'll and his great. box of office right. supplies is well worn. He's done that <laughs> lots of times. Yeah, he's done. He's done the walk of shame <laughs> for more jobs than he can count. Now the uh, the name that's written on his card, Dick Turpin. This is a a, a British uh, historical yep, a figure. highwayman. Uh, yeah, highwayman. the most famous highwayman, uh, I think. It's an int- it's a British. Joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, I get it. It's a car highwayman. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I was wondering. I was looking through articles about. Uh, about Dick Turpin, it's like, how does this really apply? Oh, car, <laughs> highwayman, <laughs> nice. So after Newt leaves uh, the job, which did not go so well, <laughs> he um, runs into Shadwell. I always find this relationship a little hard to believe, just because when you see someone like Shadwell standing in the street corner with a big sign, shouting about witches you don't make friends with them you just avoid eye contact <laughs> you know like but it's, it's uh, just such a strange hey I, I got the sense that it was a like divine pull whatever because when he he uh when shadwell starts to say witches and then newt chimes in and says witches it was like that was he was being pulled towards shadwell and the the Witchfinder army. I believe that's uh, yeah. called uh, Taviran. Yes, I mean, it there was, you go. So it's now <laughs> it, it was not. It was something that just his family. That's what his family was going to do, and that's what he was always meant to do. So, oh, so I just yeah. thought about that. So yeah. he was just going to do it no yeah. matter what. Ancestral memory. Right. So yeah. hang on. Does that make Newt the dragon? Oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> I don't know. Could be. Why I would be drawn him? to Michael Michael McKean myself, just as a fan. So, uh. <laughs> so, so in the book, Shadwell never stops smoking. So he could very well be the dragon. And in fact, they cleaned up Shadwell a lot for the TV yeah. show in the book. 
He's really disgusting. Like every, he never stops smoking. Everything in his apartment is covered in a fine layer of cigarette ash. Like yeah. <laughs> it's just, he's just really grotty. Yeah. Now I love his sign. Uh, his sign: witches blight crops, cast the evil eye, dance naked, an abomination. Hmm. Worship the devil, have too many nipples, and call their cats funny names. <laughs> I think that's pretty val- oddly specific. It's pretty, pretty accurate to me. <laughs> the fixation with nipples. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> I won't lie, it's pretty entertaining. How many nipples have you got? <laughs> it's, just, it's so amazing how Shadwell can just like comfortably just take money from people and not bat an eye at it. Yeah. Get your wallet out, lad. <laughs> Newt goes to grab the change and he just drops the change in his pocket. <laughs> He clearly has the courage of his conviction, right? He knows yes. that he is yep. doing God's work. And, you know, to do God's work in this blasphemous age, you need money. And so the, this is the best way for him to get money. Yeah. And a lot of sugar. He's clear. He's yeah. clearly comfortable with it, too, uh, because he's uh, taking money from both Crowley and Aziraphale. Yeah. Because without he, he, any quite Take foibles. from Caesar that which is Caesar's or give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and, you know, something, something. <laughs> but I think it basically ties into that if you ha- are a fanatical ideologue, you can justify anything. True that. Yep. So I'm I'm scrolling through the the screens on um, Amazon Prime as we do this, like just doing the you know ten minutes ahead, ten minutes ahead, and I managed to get a screen that lands perfectly on the newspaper that he hands uh, Newt with his address. He lives nice. on Jacobite Street. Hmm. What's the uh, What's the reference there? So the Jacobites. Um, oh god, best way to summarize this. Um, do you want to, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) a political movement that supported the restoration of the senior line of the House of Stuart to the British throne? So, which, in other words, bringing back Catholicism and getting rid of um, the Republic, right? Because Cromwell. So another inside. It also English speaks show. to like uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie um, was the Jack like because that was the Jacobite line and the Jacobite succession. Um, the whole era of the 16th, 17th century was in Britain was about primarily it was the war between the aristocracy and the mercantile class, right? Um, under the disguise of religion, because the aristocrats were still nominally trying to be Catholic. And the mercantile mercantilists were really very much into Protestantism. And it's a lot easier to get people to fight for you if you say it's God said and being godly rather than I want to make money and I don't think he should make as much. Okay. There's one other great little Easter egg in that uh, in that shot also that shows the address. There is uh, an advertisement there for a lost hat. Uncle Terry has lost his hat in a bookshop near Soho. Mm-hmm. Sentimental value. It's black, has a wide brim, and it's also a scarf, which is red and yellow. If you've seen Terry's hat, please, please call. He would like to have his hat back where it belongs. Please only call in the evenings as he's away most days and cannot return, uh, re- return calls. Please quote reference GO2804. So is there something on, say, page 28 or chapter 28 Good Omens? Good Omens? Since Shivana's the first yeah. edition here, let's see what see what we can find here. <laughs> so the, there's also another one that's kind of cut off that's referenced GO ten eleven. Can't tell what that what that is. So the scarf colors are the scarf colors of the unseen university. 
in Unk Morpork. Mm. Ah, the chapters aren't numbered. Page twenty-eight, at least not in my version. Paragraph four, possibly. I don't know. I was just thinking that the hat had some importance, and Aziraphale decided to collect it when he left it. it the man left it in his shop. <laughs> it's a nice little tribute to, yeah. to Terry Pratchett, yeah. I believe. Yes, yeah. Terry always wore a wide-brimmed black hat. Like oh any yeah, there's tons of mm-hmm. that. Um, there is, I think, isn't there a picture of Pratchett and Gaiman with Gaiman wearing a white suit? And Pratchett's in black. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gaiman said that he wanted yes. it to be that way round so that when the angels came a looking. Oh, did I got I got the colours the wrong That's way around. Okay. Editing Greg here. At this point, Siobhan is holding up her first edition copy of Good Omens with the author's pictures on the back. Yeah, so right. so Gaiman is dressed completely in black. Uh, Pratchett mm-hmm. is dressed completely in white, and the logic was when people object to the book, they'll come and throw stones through <laughs> Damon's window. <laughs> <and stuff. laughs> so the next scene is uh, Anathema moving into Tadfield and uh, starting her work of looking for the Antichrist. And then we go to the scene in Crowley's apartment where he is yelling at his plants. <laughs> So this scene in the book is like literally like three lines and it's a comedic moment where, you know, Crowley read something about people recommended talking to your plants. You know, this was a great idea, but because he's a demon, he got it a little bit wrong and now his plants are terrified of him. And it's just like this little tiny comedic moment. So I'm looking at my notes and when I took my notes and I was watching this, I have written in red pen underlined three times. <laughs> Talk about trauma here yes <laughs> because when you see this scene this is not comedy this is heartbreaking he is reenacting being kicked out of heaven Ooh. you don't measure up yeah You're, you've disappointed me say goodbye to your friend he just couldn't measure up and he's acting out his his trauma over the fall from the perspective of a unforgiving God who just like throws somebody out for not being good enough. Or for hanging out with the wrong people. And it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I get, I very much get the impression, um, the way Crowley describes his fall, that he doesn't actually know why he got kicked out. Mm -hmm. I hung around with the wrong people. All I ever did was Mm -hmm. ask questions, you know, like he doesn't really seem to understand, you know, and, and things he's just like, what's, what's so bad about knowing the difference between good and evil? He doesn't really seem to know Giving the flaming sword so to Adam terrible. and Eve to protect them. Well, well he already did. That. He already. Well, that was, that was after he'd fallen. That oh, was yes. yeah, that's right. And, that's and right. That was Aziraphale who did that. Mm. That wasn't even Crowley. And Aziraphale didn't get kicked out for for you know handing a divine object that he'd been commissioned with to. That was part of the ineffable plan. I mean, it does kind of beg the question: Was the f- was like deciding who fell and who didn't? done by god or was that done by the angels well uh, it gives then again it goes back to the uh to the question of free will mm-hmm. you know the free will to you can make the choice to to fall or you never make another free choice mm-hmm. again but falling also meant free will you get to do things right but Aziraphale hasn't fallen he obviously yeah. is making a lot of his own choices this is true this i don't is think true. we but he's also gone native so like we don't know but we're never shown what happened. We're told we, we know the after effects, but you know, like it, it's possible. Oh, we might find out in season two. That, it, that the fall was caused Possibly. by like the fall was a bureaucratic process done by angels 
right? Um, and Aziraphale was kicked down, not because he'd actually done anything wrong, but just because his name got put onto the wrong side of a ledger. You know, it was a bureaucratic error. Oopsie. Even if it was God's divine plan and it was more or less random, that what, still what, plays that down that road. Yeah. I mean, like, what, who is God? What is God's divine plan? Like, is this, is that a meaningful thing? Like, what do we know about God? We have, you know, her talking in the opening credits. Who is this God person anyway? Well, yeah. Francis McDormand. I think fell as being punished by being sent down. I thought he was just doing, you know, the grunt work of oh. the angels. Like, he's d- yeah. kind of down the bottom end of the worker bees, and he's down there keeping an eye on things, sending information back yeah. up the chain of command. Because he got assigned to guarding the, ga- the gates of the Garden of Eden. Um, and then right. he stayed down there, and nobody called him back. You know, um, I mean, it could also possibly to atone for his, you know, giving the sword away. To Adam and Eve. I'd probably have to see more of the other demons and their backstory and history to really know yeah. if that would be the case. Because really, we're basing this off of just Crowley and how Crowley feels about the fall, but. We don't have like the whole story of all of the demons, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, like the the other right. demons all seem to be pretty into being demonic. Like they seem pretty hat. Like you know, I mean, Haster and um, pa- Haster and Lego. They seem pretty into doing demony things. Yeah. You know, they they like their. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas Crowley doesn't. So that tends to make me think that the the fall was more or less behavior or attitude based or you know mm-hmm. what your your personality trait was and and Crawley maybe truly did just kind of get caught with the round crowd like he was he was over yeah. there saying hi to these guys when the decision was made or something stupid like that but they were having a good music party that's why he <laughs> kind of got caught mm-hmm. up yeah that's right, right. <laughs> yeah they they were the ones playing queen <laughs> Siobhan, I'm just thinking about you know the point that you've made about the plants being a metaphor for his tra- like reliving the trauma and it just makes me think like you say in the books it's just a couple of lines yeah and bringing it to screen they're able to give so much more depth to it you know and it's this ongoing thing about oh well right. it wasn't in the books and it's like well actually <laughs> those lines were there and one of the writers is still with us and is able to say this yeah. is what we were thinking you know and they're able uh, yeah. to really mine mm-hmm. that. And I, I just love it. I love the fact that you've connected it to the reliving of his trauma because I'm now long, no longer seeing it as the terrifying poor plants side. There's also that. But then also it's giving me a bit of empathy yeah. for Crowley. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a way that he's mm-hmm. almost kind of, this is his self-care, his self-therapy, but also almost a continuous right. self-flagellation of like, this is what happened to me and how do I get out? I can't get out. I'm trapped so I'm going to control mm-hmm. what I can control, which is these poor plants, who are the most verdant mm-hmm. in all of London. <laughs> They're doing their absolute <laughs> best. <laughs> yeah, it's cruel but yeah. effective, I it, guess. It almost uh, feels yeah. to me like he's re-traumatizing himself to a degree in that. Yeah, but is that what keeps he, him going? Yeah. By re-traumatizing himself, keeping him almost, you know, this is what I've got to do. I have to do it. You know, this is the side I'm on. I have to keep. I have to fulfill. I have to do my job. It's almost like getting up in the morning. Why do I have to go into work? Okay, I need to pay my bills. You know, I need food. Okay, I need to do this. Yeah. Get out of bed. Better, keep going. Better to attack these plants than the human beings that I love. Yeah. Or the fellow true. demons. That's very true. Which yeah. would get him in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is like his this, only This really illustrates that Neil Gaiman is 
brilliant at taking his properties that are on the page and translating them for the current era, the current times, the current understanding of the human race. And when it gets moved to a visual format, because we talked talked about this with Sandman too. Mm -hmm. A lot of the changes that were made felt right for the common era rather than when the comic book was, Mm -hmm. was published. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this illustrates that as well. We understand a lot more about trauma and PTSD and things like that. So if that truly was the intent that was there, and I can't see why it couldn't be, mm. that that's mm-hmm. an amazing illustration. Yeah, it's like uh, on the page, it could just be like, okay, this is a little offhand cruelty from a demon. But yeah, bringing in that uh, that trauma response is yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it works. Well, and it's as, really, really as Siobhan well says, even in the in the book, it's very different because it says that. He got the idea wrong about talking to your plants. In right. the TV show, it's intentional that he terrifies the plants. There isn't anything about him getting yeah. that idea wrong. That's um, no, part of his he got, ability. He, he got the like, the concept of talking to plants wrong in that, you know, it's not supposed to be you shout at and scare them. Um, but it's, he, it's, it's still the interpretation that a demon is going to make, right? Right. That's how you're supposed to interact with the universe. That's how things get done in hell. Mm-hmm. This is really blowing my mind. Like, like we have to, we have to do a deep dive on this, Siobhan, like on a trauma <laughs> episode. Seriously, it's I, I'm just making me think that because talking to plants, being in nature, is therapy, right? Yes. That is way. That's ways that you deal with trauma. Mm-hmm. You you get out there into nature. You connect. You know, with with the soil and the trees. And that's what Crowley's doing in his own way. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. this is heartbreaking. It oh, is. my goodness. <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> Three lines in the book, two minutes in the show, and I think we've been talking about it for about 15. Yep. It's, a, it's a fantastic. That's awesome. And there will be a spin-off episode about the trauma. <laughs> <laughs> trauma plants in Good Omens. <laughs> um, so there's a very brief... Um, scene in the bookstore where Zerfell is talking to a customer and uh, he has this again Michael Sheen with his micro expressions he, he he hangs up on a very unsatisfactory phone call and you just see him kind of roll his eyes and you can see the God give me patience <laughs> but also I saw it as a reminder that that's the one book he doesn't have damn it yes he doesn't like to be reminded that there is a book out there that he doesn't have and who's looking for it that's Everybody, everybody That's what I was the interested. most famous <laughs> book of prophecies that nobody has. Sets up a nice little mystery there. And then we meet Madame Tracy. Newt goes to visit Shadwell and uh, Madame Tracy opens the door. And I love how completely matter of fact Madame Tracy is. She is such a wonderful character. She is a sex worker. She yes. is a little bit of a shyster. She does the the seances for pay. And stress mm. relief for the discerning gentleman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and also to show how inept Newton is with technology, the the, the buttons are clearly labeled on the uh, on the intercom. <laughs> Madam Tracy is definitely thirty six A. Shadwell is definitely thirty six B. It's a thirty six B in the ad and he presses thirty six A. <laughs> he just is if buttons are involved eh, things will happen um and then uh, he starts work for shadwell he's cutting out news articles in newspapers that have phenomena phenomena phen- ph- strange things happening 
real quick, back to Madam Tracy. Miranda Richardson. I mean, come on. She's she's a national treasure. She is a national she treasure. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And one of my one of my favorite lines in this episode uh, is with when um, she offers to make Newt some tea, and Shadwell says, "He's in the army now, Jezebel. He'll make his own tea." <laughs> I was just thought, I don't know why. I love that line so much. <laughs> like, this is like progression. This maturity now. He's in the army. We make our own tea. I just thought, yeah. as a tea lover, I really appreciated that. Really- just as long as no buttons are involved. Yeah, as long as yeah. it's not an electric kettle. <laughs> well, I kind of assume that that must be one of the things, one of the few pieces of technology that he can um operate and that must have something to do with him being english yeah you know, like that just overrides <laughs> his innate englishness will overpower any sort of technological impairments he has yeah that gets in the way of making tea yep so the relationship between shadwell and madam tracy is just bizarre <laughs> <laughs> and hilarious there's actually a line in the book where um it says something about you know shadwell is taken to yelling jezebel and painted harlot at the top of his lungs down the hallway and madam tracy tells newt it's actually rather good free advertising <laughs> <laughs> But then if you'll make me tea, I'll, I will welcome you in with uh, open arms. <laughs> just, yeah, it's just like two completely eccentric individuals who happen to be neighbors. In some ways, it's almost like a parallel of um, Aziraphale and Crowley's relationship. They, in theory, have nothing in common, mm-hmm. but yet they still, still obviously spend time together. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, I think it is a, like it's perfect as an analogy for that. I mean, Aziraphale is always telling Crowley, reminding him that he's a demon. Get thee behind me, foul fiend! Mm-hmm. And and Shadwell yells, "Harlot!" At <laughs> you know, Madame Tracy, basically. Yeah. And then they just kind of okay. Now that's out in the open. We'll just get on with our day. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's perfect, Siobhan. Because then later, Aziraphale's in her body. That's the mm-hmm. that so they yeah. they are very similar, right? Yeah. They're mm-hmm. able to she's able to to bring him in. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, and you know she mentions that. Oh, he mentioned that there'd be a new recruit coming. Uh, so they talk. Yeah, they're. <laughs> they're it, <laughs> you know, it's like, are, are, is is this sort of an act? Are they really like you know just sort of nice neighborly people, or is uh, are they just yelling these polite conversations at each other? Well, he yells. Oh, he yes. responds. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, 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 yeah. I think he does it because out of a sense. I think he does it out of a sense of duty, not because he actually believes it. Right. But he has to say the words because if he doesn't, then he isn't him. Right. True. True. Which again ties into how Aziraphale feels about Crowley. Mm-hmm. And also, it's hard to be a witchfinder if you respect women. Um. Mm. There's that too. Yeah. Strange how this is all so timely, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Or maybe it's not timely. Maybe it's just that humans don't ever change, unfortunately. Right. That's more like it. Okay, and can we talk about the prop? Uh, the thunder gun of Witchfinder Colonel. Get him before they get you, Dalrymple. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> 
Yes, it's awesome, and thank you for remembering the full title. Oh. <laughs> I, I, have, I have it up on another screen. That's how I'm able to do this. So that's Chekhov's gun, quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes it is. Yes. Except never to be used again. Yeah. You don't well. say those words without him using it at some point. This is episode two, but it's ten episodes, so this is the first act, you know. I was just going to say I love uh, Newt's reactions to everything um, being said in this scene. Like, and what do we use? He pulls out the scissors. Starts How do we use stabbing. it? Starts <laughs> stabbing. No. No, this is after cutting newspapers. <laughs> Newt, no matter what scene he's in, always manages to like just physically convey the entire experience of being in over your head. <laughs> like, no, that is true. Just, you know. yeah, the, the label on a stack of newspapers is unexplainable phenomenons, phenomena, trutzes, phenomenous things. Oh, you can know what I mean. <laughs> you can well know what I mean. So the next scene we have, um, Crowley is in his apartment and he gets a phone call from Azuravel who says, what if the, the babies were swapped? So Aziraphale is defined. Let me see if I can find a segment in the book because it's actually hilarious. He actually flat out says Aziraphale is, that Aziraphale is very clever. Um, and this is kind of the proof of it because he's the one who figures out that the baby, that he figures out that the babies were swapped. I can't find the, uh, can't find the, the text, unfortunately. But it basically says... Um, to paraphrase, there are three things that people assume as the first time they meet Aziraphale. One, that he is English. Two, that he is very <laughs> clever. And three, that he's as gay as a uh, tree full of monkeys on nitrous oxide. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is that God narrating that says that, or is that Crowley narrating that um, says that? If you assume that God is the narrator in the book, then that would be... That would be God, I guess. Um, okay, so that makes sense. I, I wouldn't. I think Crowley thinks that he's clever, but I don't think he would out, outwardly admit it, because I think Crowley wants to be the more clever of the two of the group. Crowley certainly mm. comes yeah. across as the more yeah. worldly. You know, he's he's he knows that the Velvet Underground is not Crowley's a demon, and, and therefore and therefore has yeah. ego. Yes. And I was just thinking that that's an interesting juxtaposition because I was going to bring up when we get to it um, the scene where. Uh, Aziraphale is reading the prophecies. Um, Agnes Nutter actually comes out and calls him a stupid angel. Foolish principality. <laughs> a foolish yes. angel, yes. So it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition that the prophecy says that he's foolish, but now you have the narrator in God saying that he is this clever well, angel. See, now don't forget intelligence and wisdom are two different stats. <laughs> wasn't, the, uh, wasn't the narrator saying that people think that wasn't God saying yeah. that she thinks he is God saying people assume people, these oh, yeah. things he is English smart yeah. and really queer and then it goes on to say that only one of those things is actually true he is not English right. I thought it was something angels, yeah. angels don't have gender unless they're yeah. willing to make an effort and uh, mm. but he is very very intelligent yes <clears throat> and back to Crowley I don't think Crowley would be friends with somebody who wasn't incredibly intelligent. Right. He doesn't suffer fools. I just don't think he would. He would spend. He, why would he spend time around people like that? Anyone? Yeah. Like, why would like he waste that? waste time with yeah. somebody like that? Yeah. And, Which and, is why he brushes off uh, the witchfinder so quickly. Yeah. 
But I think Crowley that's, that's will think episode, that though. Aziraphale is nearly as in, as intelligent as he is. Yeah. And they may both yeah. think the same thing. I'm sure Aziraphale thinks yeah, that probably. Crowley is nearly as intelligent as he is. <laughs> so we get the scene where um, Aziraphale and Crowley are driving to Tadfield. And I don't know how anybody else feels about this, but whenever I see them in a car together, I get old married couple vibes. Yes. So strongly. Definitely. <laughs> Aziraphale complains about just driving nonstop. <laughs> He's grabbing non-stop. the ocean shit bar. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, the husband brushing off all of the complaints with, oh, whatever, right. it's okay. <laughs> they, they they knew the risk they were taking by being in the road in the to first place. Fair, to be fair, he does drive like a demon, so. Well, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, like, every scene, there's one where he actually just looks at Crowley and sighs and goes, just drive the car. And I, that's mm-hmm. my mother's voice. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty appropriate. So then we go to Tadfield. We have another scene where we meet the them and find out a little more about them as individuals. And then Anathema meets the them. So pretty much the first people she meets in Tadfield is the yes. Antichrist. <laughs> like she, she <laughs> And she still boom. doesn't recognize it. Yeah. yeah. Her, her whole point of being is to find the Antichrist. And it's the first thing she does. Yep. But doesn't realize it. Which proves that she, you know, she has been trained successfully. The fates are cooperating, etc., etc. The only problem is that the Antichrist doesn't look anything like the Antichrist that you'd expect. So, which I put towards again, Anathema's um, distaste with her lot in life, because, like you said, the fates are working in her favor, and she's been mm-hmm. trained, and she has all of the knowledge and everything that's clear. But she is so stuck up in. I don't want to be here that it's right in front of her nose and she can't even see I, it. I yeah. tracked it yeah. up to Adam's supernatural defense thingy. Yeah. That's yep. possible too. Yeah. Suspicion slides off him. I mean, she even asks him like, you know, everybody, have you seen a great beast? And he goes, well, there's dog. Yeah. And she goes, yeah, yeah that's not what I'm looking <laughs> like, for. She literally right points to the hellhound. <laughs> 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 Which again, to be fair, does looks like the opposite of what you'd expect a hellhound to look like. This is true. It seems like she's trying to take things literally. You spent your entire life um, translating prophecy, which is never clear. Then I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, she should be better at looking for the not obvious. Yeah, you would think she's not. Taking things literally is not what she does on a regular basis. Yeah. But But her mom has to remind her of that, right? That it's not always, you don't realize what it means until after the fact, which isn't helpful, but... If you know yeah. that, then try to think widely. Like, what could this, you know, what's a different way of looking at this? And this, the cutest dog ever is clearly the hellhound. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that the the first game that they come up with as a group happens witch to be... Trial. Witch trial. <laughs> witch trials, yeah. And witch yeah. trials. <laughs> and that happens to be what they're playing when Anathema finds them for the first time. Well, basically, yeah. welcome and, and... to the village. That's their way of... <laughs> and that possibly could have been... a. a... A yeah. clue. I do like the introduction <laughs> of the the members of the, the them. It gives a little backstory on each of them. It's very uh, it, it's very cute. The only thing separating yeah. Wednesdaydale from life of chartered accountancy is time. time. <laughs> <laughs> I think Brian's my favorite. <laughs> the grimy one. It's just always. 
gross. <laughs> Grimy. It's a Brian and But, you know, just, just, you know, kind of happy with simple things in life and dreams of 96 flavors of ice cream and will do what needs to be <laughs> v- done. Vanilla chocolate and chocolate vanilla that are somehow <laughs> yep. different. Yep. <laughs> of course, it depends which, which goes on top. So. Right. What's getting swirled into what? Strawberry and vanilla and chocolate. Congratulations, you've invented Neapolitan. So from there we get into the entire scene with the paintball. <laughs> oh, so great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Azir feels okay with guns because they're, um, oh, used to add weight to a moral yes. argument. <laughs> and I love that, I love that Crowley is like, whatever. That is the worst explanation I've ever in his face. <laughs> here, let me show you what your moral argument looks like in real life. <laughs> so, here, so here we get into another scene with the weaponized puppy dog eyes. Xerophil <laughs> <laughs> talks Crowley into cleaning his coat for him. So you saw you saw Crowley use puppy dog eyes to get Xerophil to help him mm. find the Antichrist. And mm-hmm. now Xerophil says... Puppy dog snake oh, eyes. But- yeah. Clean my coat for me. <laughs> I have to say, as being slightly OCD, I really felt that. Like, I understood that even if he miracled it away, he'd always know that it was there on some level. And Crowley's just able to take it out of existence. Like, oh, I'd love to put that to my carpets. <laughs> <laughs> that would be handy. I also love that this is the same crew that um, Newt gets fired right. from. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you know he would have been there had he uh, not Newt been would have fired. been there and would have been in the in the fight if he hadn't have gotten fired that day i don't think he would have lasted long he probably would have tripped over something <laughs> right oh yeah knocked himself out knocked himself cold and bullets would just whiz over his head yeah. <laughs> so i want to talk about the whole thing where crowley changes the guns into real guns shooting real bullets mm-hmm. while people and people do not stop shooting at each other right that's uh <laughs> to but be he also fair. makes it those, those <laughs> yeah. bastards in accounting yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i've had days but he just make it so that they they all have miraculous ways of avoiding the bullets of avoiding yeah. it nobody yeah. actually yeah. dies yeah. yeah so i find this really interesting because because crowley is a demon his job is to corrupt people but not necessarily to kill them what he has done he's he's very big on choice everybody has to choose their actions what he has done he's just created a situation where all the people who were involved in that team building exercise go on for the rest of their lives knowing that they tried to kill somebody yeah and that somebody tried to kill them they weren't successful but not because they said holy shit what am i doing and put the gun down because purely by accident nobody died introduced trauma into their lives that they're never going to Make he, go away. He, see, he's sharing his trauma again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gave them hurt people, hurt a people. choice, mm-hmm. and and I just I just find that like the implications of that so fascinating. It's like he could have you know given them real guns and let them cause carnage, but instead they're going to have to live with the knowledge and the memory of what they've done and make future choices based on that knowledge. And how many of them quit the next day? Would you go back into the office after that? Oh, they all get arrested. Oh, That's yeah. true. But then they quit. <laughs> for, for for using automatic weapons in 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 this in the city zone but uh it really illustrates that Crawley understands the human race and the rest of the demons don't like they're all very straightforward about their corruption oh i talked to this priest and whispered in his ear blah 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 when you know that 
okay, that might work. But Crawley's everything Crawley does, you know, taking the cell phone lines down that, you know, is going to cause stress and destruction across the entire country. That's a way bigger effect than anything. And the demons just brush it off as like, this is nothing. What are you doing? That's that's ridiculous. This is the same thing. He's done this something that is so truly going to change the human being over a long period of time because he understands them on that level. Yeah, he's spreading trauma, not corruption. So this is reminding me of Morpheus and the serial killers, where Mm -hmm. he gives them knowledge of what they're doing. He strips that away from them, right? And they have full... It's like they're really facing themselves. Mm. Seems like a similar theme here. Mm -hmm. Nice. And then then immediately, you know, in that same scene, when Aziraphale's like, oh, I knew you weren't so bad. Crowley's reaction is really a don't you dare. <laughs> so what are you talking about? Yeah. I just but also, changed but all also of these guys for this, the worst. It's just like, no, like, you know, again, going back to the, the plants, right? He's re-traumatizing himself. Mm-hmm. He needs to justify being a demon, doing all these things. And he doesn't want it pointed out when he might be empathizing. And actually, isn't Crowley then more human and empathizes more with humanity than Aziraphale? Mm-hmm. Because he does actually really understand them. Yep. Whereas Aziraphale is still like, oh, you know, these lovely little humans. Like, no, we're not lovely at all. <laughs> I, I disagree. Yet- I, I think that they both have, they both view, they both see different parts of humanity and the parts that they identify with. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Crowley inherently is drawn towards the, you know, the darker side of the human condition, sees the worst in everybody. Um, and Azrafel is going to see the best in everybody because he's an angel. You see that expression on his face when the the, the former nun is talking about the Antichrist little tozy wozies. (laughs) 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 And he gets this smile on his face because those are the parts of human nature that he's drawn to. And Crowley can't understand those, Mm. right, because they're alien to his creation. Oh, yes. Both of them are, they're close to humanity, so they they, they feel and write, which makes them different from other angels and devils but they still are angels and devils so they're not seeing humans in their full form right but when they're together their cooperation allows them to have an understanding and crowley right? can't feel the love because, that Zerophel yeah. feels when he's like oh there's something here there's yeah. some and he's like it's love and he's like what are you on about it's nothing yep yeah yeah yes yeah, so Tr- crowley has his little meltdown which i he's stressed he's lost the antichrist Hell is not going to be happy with him. And then Aziraphale calls him nice. It's the last straw. (laughs) (laughs) Throws him up on a wall. You do not. Nice is a four-letter word. And then walks the former nun. And sorry to break up an intimate moment. (laughs) I love that line. (laughs) Like two lovers having a quarrel, getting a bit physical. Apart from the inherent eroticism of, like, pressing your hereditary enemy up against the wall with your entire torso. Um, <laughs> Aziraphale... Never- when you put it like that, Siobhan. <laughs> Aziraphale never looks scared. He looks surprised. Yeah. But you see Aziraphale with the other angels, and he always looks nervous. He's always kind of, you know, a little bit fidgety. He's got lots of lots of, you know, barely controlled expressions on his face. When Crowley physically threatens him, he just looks like... Stone-faced. Oh, this is... Yeah, like, what's yeah. going on? You are surprising me. But a, at never, never at any point does he mm-hmm. appear to be afraid. We have a I denizen of hell really screaming in my face, but yeah, it's cool. 
but it's my denizen of hell, so it's okay. <laughs> Which makes me think that uh, they must have had full body contact many times over the centuries. And they've known each other for 6,000 yeah, years to it. You know, right? Like, you, 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 by that point, you can have a pretty good understanding of how someone's going to behave towards you. So, uh, Sister Mary Loquacious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Reappears 11 years later. <laughs> I love how they, they be sure, or God is sure to mention that they weren't doing their satanic uh, nunnery yeah. very well <laughs> in, the, in the narration. <laughs> they were really bad at they being just, a, a cult of cult nuns. Cult of satanic nuns who weren't really good at it. And I love the fact that the first thing uh, first thing Crowley does is uh, mute her because yeah, the previous time he met her, she, she would not stop talking. Right. <laughs> it's the loquacious, the chattering yeah. order. You didn't have to do that. <laughs> Well, actually, yeah, maybe we didn't. Yeah. You haven't met her. <laughs> we have to get a word in edgewise here. So they um, they figure out that she's not going to be much help. And so they leave at the time that the police are in the middle of arresting everybody. And they just stroll out through, <laughs> you know, everybody getting arrested. So I don't know if the humans cannot see them or, you know, do they have like a, a, a extra space? powerful somebody else's problem field that they put on when they don't want someone <laughs> I would kind of assume, with them i would kind of assume that that's that's about it because yeah the police cops are going to stop anybody at that point you know they're going to arrest everybody in there well no matter what you know that, that's how british cops work um <laughs> so the fact that they're able to get out like that that speaks to they're using magic yeah angels have to be able to do that like a with the the observation and things that's that's referenced mm -hmm. they have to have some sort of ability to hide themselves while they're watching right. over but they just sort of stroll out as if nothing happened and it, it i'm just reminded of the end of uh money python and the holy grail where the cops just show up and start arresting everybody now one thing i did notice the uh the crowley's car the license plate is n-i-a-t-r-u-c which spells curtain backwards I have no idea the significance of it. I just noticed it. No idea. I'm going to have to look that one nope. up. Don't know. So in the next scene, they made anathema by running her over. And Queen's on the radio. <laughs> you, you hit somebody. No, they hit me. <laughs> so that is also a trauma response. Yeah. For someone who was raised where you're always in trouble and no one would ever listen to your side of things, your very first reflex is somebody says, you did something wrong. I say, no, I didn't. Somebody else did it. I wasn't And there. the explanation of why it wasn't them. It's also yeah. pretty narcissistic, too. Well, I mean, this is someone whose bosses are actual demons. Right. I imagine that your explanation for what you did wrong isn't received well in hell. So they take Anathema back to uh, her place. Um Zerfell upgrades her bike while, she, while they're Zerfell at it. Zerfell upgrades her bike. Yeah, oh, Lord, just, heal just this bike. Uh, love Crawley's, <laughs> oh, God, heal this bike. <laughs> Having to it, It's so funny because he's always tempting him to use his miracle magic, but then in this scene, he's also making fun of him when he actually does. Yeah. So it, Crawley is such a, a conflicted character on that. It's like, do they does he really want to, to be forcing or tempting uh, Xerophil to use it? Or what's going on there? It's almost like he wants to see it, but then doesn't like when it happens because it's not what he's used to in yeah. demon magic. It's also kind of, you know, blowing their cover a little bit too. You know, so when Xerophil turns on the light, let there be light, and she gets suspicious. Anathema gets suspicious, so Crowley just snaps it off. 
Yeah, I, I suppose Crowley would be like um, annoyed that because Aziraphale doesn't use his magic that often, he's not that great at he's it. He's very obvious about it. I was going to say this, uh, this whole scene, though, made me think, how did Aziraphale survive so long? Like, he's just so not cool, not subtle, not slick at all. Just like, oh, light. Oh, I put gears on your bike. Oh, let me, you know, fix that broken wrist that you have. (laughs) I think that further illustrates that angels are going to be angels no matter what. And he can screw up over and over and over again. And I think he might have figured that out by now. Yeah. Is that he doesn't really have to be that careful anymore. Angels don't have to hide. Demons, on the other hand, have to hide who they are right. all the time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Especially their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because most most people are welcoming to angels, but they're not to demons. There are actual sayings in many cultures like, you know, always be kind to travelers and strangers. You may meet an angel on the road. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to go back to uh, the license plate. I just looked it up and it says that apparently the license plate of Crowley's Bentley is curtained backwards. Gaiman said because of the writing on the mausoleum in the suicidal leave section of Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Oh. Curtain backwards like it's the final curtain. Oh, okay. Huh. Like Monty Python rears its head again. There. Sorry, broke the, fl- broke the flow there. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, all good. That's what editors are um, for. I just want to note that in the book, after Crowley calls his earthful angel, he says, get in the car, angel. Anathema they're on in mentally refers to them as consenting bicycle repairmen. <laughs> <laughs> so does that relate to the bicycle repairman sketch from Monty Python, which is where everybody is a superhero. Oh, like that. Um, and the bicycle repairman is a superhero who in his spare time turns into a bicycle <laughs> repairman. I am not familiar with that sketch. <laughs> it's it's one of the later After ones. Um, left, yeah. Like everybody is Superman, right? And and Could yeah, be. like the bicycle repairman is like this super uh, awesome thing because <laughs> nobody else can repair bicycles. <laughs> we could fly. I would not be surprised if it is a connection to that. There's going to be loads of Monty Python connections. Yeah. Yeah. So Zerfil comes up with the idea of using humans to find the Antichrist. Again, he's the clever one. And I love how they both acknowledge that Crowley's like, well, you know. We don't, we don't want to work in together because why not aren't as sophisticated because he assumes that Aziraphale's are <laughs> sophisticated is, is total, and like oh no why not either <laughs> the same <laughs> and we find That's out why. later that well yeah just 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 sets up the next episode yeah. so well but, but I love the fact that Crowley just would had automatically assumed that Aziraphale would have very sophisticated intelligent you know human network and then Aziraphale's face is like kind of like, well, actually, no. They're, they're but they both think the other one is better at their job than they actually uh-huh. are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and more committed, too. We then flip over to a scene with the Antichrist in question, um, which is like this very cute, you know, mom goes in to check on him while he's asleep and he's hiding the dog in his room. But at the very end of that scene, you start to hear the whispers mm-hmm. because he's named the dog. Everything's starting now and starting to hear voices in his sleep. I also thought it wasn't totally cute. There is something with the parents of kind of acknowledging there's something a little bit odd about our son. Yeah. Like I thought it was a bit of concern, yeah. especially with the mom. He's so sweet. Yeah, when he's sleeping. You know. Yeah, there's something but, there. Yeah. He's 11. <laughs> you know, yeah. like. But like, he's an 11 year old who always gets what he right. wants. Right? I think that's kind of the thing is that they, it's not nothing bad. Mm. He's not hurting them, but there's a discomfort around who he is. And especially the, you know, parents, they kind of, they know there's something, you know, mm-hmm. especially if he unnerves them, 
a child unnerving their parents and they're not they're not being able to figure out why i can imagine that might mm-hmm. have happened a lot and the actor as well that plays adam he has something unnerving about him like even when he's before mm. he's really you know he hasn't, hasn't gone through the change fully yet but there's something already there in his eyes and his facial expression really well cast mm-hmm. yeah and then for the final scene of this particular uh, episode Aziraphale, Aziraphale finds the book that got left in the car after giving Anathema a ride home. That's like finding the uh, Holy Grail for him, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Pretty, yep. No doubt. No oh. doubt. Yet another Monty uh, Python reference. <laughs> <laughs> Coco, the the mug of Coco, the Grail. Yeah. Oh, there mm-hmm. you go. <laughs> Anathema just doesn't care about her duty. She does not get, like. I I would think someone who had possession of that book and cared would be like. That would be the one thing you would be checking for all the time. You would have it locked on your person. To be fair, she just had right. it. I was going to say. That is true, yeah. but yeah. still. She is concussed. Spin in a car accident. Confused yeah. about gears appearing and disappearing and not quite sure what happened. Yeah, she's just a little shook. Yeah, yeah. Ha- having had several bike accidents along those lines, I can say <laughs> that her being a little bit out of sorts at that point is totally understandable. Um, but even allowing for that, I think... She has grown up with this book. It's always been there, right? It's not going to feel as valuable to her as to pretty much anybody else in the world. Yeah, she drew on true. the title page. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's like the only copy in existence people would pay any amount of money for it, mm-hmm. and she drew on it. Yeah. In pencil crayon. I really wanted them to show the And her mom scene. didn't get mad you know? either. I wanted I wanted Aziraphale to to turn the page to the drawing and be like, "What the heck is this?" Like I really I thought yeah. that was going to happen he, he the opens, first time. He opens to it. They do they don't show. They just a don't show it, right? But I just like I would have yeah. liked that kind of like yeah. he's this is the holy grail and he's wearing his gloves to touch it and then it's like, "What the heck is this crayon painting?" And I do have to say, for such an old <laughs> book, man, the paper quality it has held up remarkably. And also, just back to um, oh my god, her name's gone out of my head. Anathema. 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 Back to Anathema. Also, the fact that she's had this book, she's probably had it next to her since she was born, but she's also memorized probably most of the prophecies as well. So I guess there's, mm-hmm. she's not always needing to go to the book to check something because she's got it in her head as well. Yeah. Yeah, you see you see in the beginning, they have a card file. her mother quizzes her. She gives a name, mm-hmm. number of the prophecy and Anathema recites it back to her. She doesn't understand them, right. but she has them memorized. Yeah. I, I love the scene where Aziraphale sees the book picks it up realizes what it is and he's like gotta go gotta go gotta go (laughs) and Crowley really comes across like he thought he was going to be invited in yeah so what do you make of this they're going to do what they always do they're going to have a conversation they're going to hang out they're going to drink yeah exactly they'll you know Azrafel will have a cup of tea and uh Crowley will have a bottle of whiskey so why doesn't Azrafel immediately share this because he's an angel and he knows that Crow- Crowley is a devil and he knows what he knows that w- what he's got. No, but they're already they're already in he... partnership though, aren't they, to prevent it? Deep down he doesn't trust him still though. It does make me really sad. I don't know. I, I think it's just because books are Azerophil's thing. He they they go into this whole background mm. where he collects books of prophecy. This is a hobby of his that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the end with the apocalypse doesn't have anything to do with Crowley Crowley says I don't read yeah yeah I suppose that's true because it's not the realization about the connection between the book and the antichrist doesn't happen until he figures out that the prophecies are actually real but when he figures it out Crowley rings him and says have you figured anything out and he's like oh no no nothing I haven't 
So he has figured out where the Antichrist is. He's in Tadfield. He's rang the house and he still doesn't share it with. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while. It's like I've, I've only rewatched the first two episodes. I haven't done the whole season. So we'll find out when he does actually tell Crowley. But in this moment, I was just like, oh, OK, they're not as pally as like work does supersede even the friendship. So there is a line in the book when Aziraphale reads the prophecies where he says, I, I, ha- I ought to tell Crowley. And then he goes, no. I want to tell Crowley. Mm-hmm. I ought to tell Heaven. Gotcha. <laughs> I think, yeah, that I think that speaks to it. I can very much see him in the moment. He gets the book, he realizes the book, and he wants it to himself. Mm. And he doesn't, everybody else is less important. Mm. Like, this is just the most awesome thing. And then when he's got in, getting it, processing what he's got, understanding it, duty is the thing that jumps to the fore. He might, like I said, want to tell Crowley because he's his buddy. But if he tells Crowley, and his bosses find out mm. the implications from that could just be way too horrific. So yeah, and he's got to work through, he's got to work through his own um, trauma, mm-hmm. right? Because he knows he knows Gabriel, right? You know, and and as we've seen, he's afraid of yeah his bosses. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. It's yeah, and he has just found the okay. Antichrist. So the first person. Yeah. You wouldn't tell a demon about that, right. <laughs> like immediately. You need to sit with it yeah. for a bit. Can I just say also, I, I just really love Aziraphale's mug that it's got its the angel, angel wing. wing with the angel, angel wings. wings. <laughs> yep. So you know, here's Coco something I hadn't really thought cold. about before, but like we talked about the scene where um, Crowley's yelling at his plants and talked about how that represents his trauma at the fall. Aziraphale probably has his own trauma around that because there was a war in heaven where angels were pitted against each other and then the rebels fell. Some of those would have been people you knew. Mm-hmm. You fought against your siblings. There's there's trauma in the winning side as well. Well, and I also think that Aziraphale is, car- is still carrying a lot of guilt over the decision of giving Adam the flaming sword. And they, they really set that up in the first episode when Crowley's like, well, did you really make the right decision? And I think that Aziraphale now... When he has a huge decision to make, there's a lot of weight to it. And he carries that guilt of that decision of whether that was the right decision or not. Mm -hmm. And so making any huge decision about anything going forward is difficult for him because he's still carrying that around and doesn't know whether or not that was the right decision. Okay, I'm, I'm... I've changed my mind. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we have the podcast, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I found an interesting little Easter egg in uh, the the superimposed uh, prophecies that are showing up as Zerfels reading it. Let the wheel of fate turn. Let hearts enjoin. There are other fires than mine. When the wind bloweth the blossoms, reach out one to another, for the calm cometh when red and white and black and pale approach to peace is our perfection. Peace is our uh, profession, which that's a slight little nod to Dr. Strangelove there. Uh, peace is our profession on Ooh. all the billboards on the military bases. That's that's a cute little, uh, that's cute kind little of perfect. nod to Armageddon there. Yeah. This this show is so full. Oh, yeah. Just going through. The rest of the prophecies they put up are pretty boring, though. They're all, all the same ones right. from the show. Because uh, Sam, Sam and I paused and looked at everyone and were like, oh, man, we were hoping for at least another, like, apple. Because they use the apple yeah. one over and over again. Like, yeah. you could have come up with a few more that are just yeah. fun and exciting. The behind, but... 
she was very One disappointed. behind the eagle's nest, a great ash hath fallen. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean. Oh, that comes up uh, later because Newt and Anathema get into the base that's by climbing true. over the fence. Oh. And the ash tree fell over and yeah. that's took out part true. of the okay, fence. That's true. Okay, that's where I can... Yeah, all, all of the... That's how they get past the soldier. All of the ones they show in that scene are seem to be either ones that they've mentioned as as joke prophecies before or ones that are related to the yeah, show. Especially to the four horsemen. Storyline. comes up a lot. The red mm. and white and black and pale, that would be your four yep. horsemen. We should knock them off as we progress through the episodes. Yeah. <laughs> We're starting the spreadsheet. <laughs> Sam. <laughs> we we were wondering if the the book had more of the the prophecy text than what they show in the show. I'll I'll have to yeah I think that, I don't I think, think so I think just the ones they actually use. I thought there was I thought they were kind of randomly dispersed, but I'm cleaning enough to get a new copy since whoever stole mine is not going to give it back. That's just so wrong. That's all right. Crowley will get them somewhere somehow. <laughs> don't touch my book. <laughs> The only other thing I got from this scene is that it happens at a time period where everybody still has landlines. I don't know what the uh, UK is like right now, but nobody in Canada has landlines. Well, I mean, he did. It's kind of in that, uh, that I'd say like mid-90s, early 2000s during that transition because, you know, Crowley did disrupt the mobile network in episode one. I thought that was kind of like a, a quaint hangover from the, t- the time of the book and now they're bringing it to, to screen. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like... Um, I don't know if any of you have seen Sex Education. Yes. There's this kind of almost nostalgia trap of not having modern devices. Right. But it is happening now in, you know. Yeah. I've seen like several TV series where the time it takes place in is non-specific and technology is what is useful to the plot at the time it is interesting that the angels have the cell phones though so i'm wondering if that's maybe part of it is they wanted the they wanted to highlight that Mm. that they're the only ones with the technology that yeah and doesn't doesn't ligger using a well no 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 mobiles are absolutely like crowley crowley's big sin thing is centered on on mobile Mm -hmm. phones right yeah, so yeah. we know that they are around. They are they exist, common. right? Yeah, but you just don't are, see it. But yeah, like because it's still it, it's this mix of the story was written in 1990, and there are some elements of it that updating to today would be a. I'm guessing how much of a pain would it be to adjust this bit of plot to modern technology? Too much. We'll just pretend we're living in the old times. Yeah. But also maybe not making it all about, you know, mobile phones. Like David says, the angels mm-hmm. have it. That says something about, you know, them being corporate asses. Yeah. Um, and obviously yeah. Aziraphale is going to have, you know, a rotary phone because mm-hmm. it's Aziraphale. <laughs> yep. You yep. know, yes. so I think it kind of he matches clothes each personality. And, and Crawley's answering machine is completely right. Crawley. Yeah, because yeah. he doesn't want to be, com- you know, he doesn't want to be found at any moment. It's like, no, I'm doing my thing. And if you want to leave me a message, I might get back to you. Probably won't. Just delete it. Screening, so. man. Screening. Yep. And I, I just love the fact that uh, the number of the beast is literally the number, the phone number of the beast. <laughs> Tadfield666. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Tadfield666. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, right number. <laughs> just, that line kills me every time. Sorry, right number. <laughs> it's just something and, you would never hear ever. And like going back to back then, 
at least in the at some point in the 80s um british phone numbers and like the area codes got a more of a standardized length because like when i first moved to england in like 79 we lived in a small village and our phone numbers were four mm -hmm. digit um and then you would have like a you know you might have like a six digit area code because that would cover that would, fill that would identify the bet the the yeah the village and i can remember like changes to area codes and changes to phone numbers to just fill them out and standardize them and make changes so that that isn't the case mm -hmm. today but for a village with you know the fact that it's three digits that would say to me that the population is going to be like no more than like 200 houses yeah. right so it's a nice little rural village which again is very much the vibe that they're going across so it's another clue mm -hmm. to that i just really appreciated a zero file looking in the phone book getting the area yeah. code figuring out like it just took me back mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to those days yeah. where we had you know the yellow pages and you know the thompson directory and, and yeah. yeah british people will get that so tadfield 046666 so i guess 046 would be the area code yeah. yes yeah yeah after we saw this episode i i turned to axel and said how long yeah. are british phone numbers because here they're always yeah. 10 digits and then you go yeah, to uh, london and it's the whole new thing it's extra <laughs> yeah back then london was the only place i think london had seven digit area code had sorry, sorry seven digit phone numbers um and then that spread to like manchester and liverpool and the other major conurbations and their area codes it was 01 for london and 02 for birmingham and 03 for manchester or whatever um and then a one got put in after the o for all the area codes so they could add more area codes um, and then there were a set of area codes introduced for the first mobile phones and Britain had to do a lot more revisions to its system because it was way less future-proof than the North American one because North American one is has always been seven digits for the area three digits for the area code um, because that had to cover not just all of the US, but also all of Canada, which meant that it had to cover lots of, it had to cover government's opinions on how things should work. I love all the information we learn in our podcast. As you were all saying in the last episode, gamers are definitely higher. Some of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just looking at, at the other thing with Zerfell actually able to hear uh, Adam outside talking about the dog walking mm -hmm. on its hind legs. It's like, is that special angel hearing or the phone's that good? Special gotcha. angel hearing. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> phones definitely I, weren't that I good. I believe that is technically referred to as plot device. Ah, uh, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> is, that an, is that an Ethemus cousin? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> cousin plot. <laughs> Okay, so I think we've covered everything in this episode, so we'll call it a wrap. And uh, take it away, Greg. All right. Well, first of all, we'd like to thank Michael and Jen at our Secret Island Watch Party headquarters. Uh, thank you, Michael thank and, you, Michael Jen. and Jen. Thank, thank you, Michael and Jen. Jen. You are responsible for this. <laughs> it's all your fault. The Watch Party Podcast Network is home to our sister podcast. Watch Party Wheel of Time, Watch Party Lord of the Rings, and a Watch Party of Ice and Fire. Email us at gameandwatchparty at gmail.com and see us on Instagram at gameandwatchparty. We've got uh, Discord coming soon, possibly some other socials. We will let you know when that is live. And now it's time for our 
final question, Siobhan. So our question of the day. You are a member of the them. The them. Which one? Yeah, I I I I'm, I know um, I'm I know I'm Brian, but I want to be Pepper. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty, I'm Wensley Dale, and I want to be yeah. Pepper. So everybody I wants to. Be Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> Pepper's awesome. I, I think um, I am Pepper. I'm Adam, and I want to, and I want to be Brian. <laughs> I mean, I, I suspect I'm Brian. Uh, but I want to be dog. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Of course, dog is one of them. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Now yeah. there is no yep. love for Winsleydale. Yeah. Who wants to be an accountant? Really. I, ha- I have a I have nobody a soft wants spot to be accountant. for Winsleydale. Yeah, yeah, a soft spot, yeah. but nobody say, wants to be. I would Winsleydale. say I would say Brian and then Wensley. Oh, I don't know Wensleydale. Maybe maybe he doesn't end up being an accountant. That's just my kryptonite, so. <laughs> you know what? I think I, yeah, Wensleydale is who I am. Dog is who I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're more an animal. I'd say you're more an animal. Okay. Okay.